namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Continuing with the chapter on the second exit point from the cycle, and this next section is called Patience is the Cleansing Flame, which is um, a line from Ajahn Sajito's translation of the um, Ovada Patimoka, the, um, uh, the Buddha's first uh, instruction on monastic discipline. Um, and so on. But you can find it in the chanting book. Um, uh, anyway, so it's a, I thought, a very evocative and uh, helpful phrase from that translation. Uh, also translated as, patient endurance is the supreme austerity, or uh, patience and endurance is the su- supreme practice for burning up unwholesome states. That's, there is a story that Ajahn Sumato has often told that illustrates this principle well. Every two weeks in the monastery, on the full and new moon days, we have a recitation of our monastic rule, the Patimoka. That's about 13,000 words of Pali, and it usually takes about 45 minutes for a chanter to recite it. The nuns chant it, the nuns, uh, uh, one is in English, is that right? Not quite 13,000 words, but... How long does it take you to chant it? Oh, it depends on the chant as well. So the 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 monks um, rule uh, at a at a fair clip. It takes about forty to forty five minutes. If you're really motoring, then it's thirty five or under. <laughs> if you're quite uh, quite sedate, then it's fifty minutes to an hour. Depending on the chanter. Anyway, so after the recitation is complete, usually the senior member of the community would give some instruction, some encouraging advice to the group. In Thailand, this recitation would usually be in the early part of the evening, about six or seven o'clock. Then all the monastics would go and join with the lay community and have an all night meditation. Usually during the evening, Ajahn Chah would give a Dhamma talk to the whole assembly as well. On one particular evening, an old monk friend of Ajahn Chah's came to visit Wat Papong, Ajahn Chah's monastery. After the recitation of the rule, instead of Ajahn Chah giving an encouraging talk to the, the assembled monks and novices, he started chatting with his friend. According to the system, everybody has to stay. You can't just say, excuse me Ajahn, I'm not really interested in your conversation, uh, so I'm going to go and sit by myself. That would be totally unthinkable, according to the protocols of the, the, the monastery. So Ajahn Chah continues chatting with his friend, and the time goes past. One hour, two hours, three hours. They're swapping stories about their trips. They're wandering through the countryside together, talking about which old monk has just died, what the mangoes are like in a particular province. All this time, the young Bhikkhu Sumato, who wasn't used to sitting on the floor, 
is getting more and more impatient, then angry, then enraged. He's thinking to himself, doesn't he know he's keeping us here pointlessly? The lay people are waiting, they're expecting a Dhamma talk. Is he doing this on purpose? So this is all off in a little sort of side uh, room, a side cha- chapel, uh, that's just for the, the monastic recitation, and the lay people would all be sitting in the main uh, in the main sala. So they're all sitting there, kind of, quote unquote, waiting for the the um, for Lumpur and the uh, and the uh, the monks to appear, and they're not appearing. So the uh, the young Bhikkhu Sumato and the the other monks are in this little um, smaller uh, smaller room. It was at the end of the old. Um, uh, eating sala and eating hall complex at Bokbapong. By one in the morning, his anger had turned into a dull resignation. So they've been there since about six o'clock. <laughs> By one in the morning, his uh, his anger had turned into a dull resignation, misery mixed together with self-pity and pain. By two thirty in the morning, he had got to the point where he realised. I give up. Uh, we can just sit here forever. If the talk goes on until dawn or even longer, it's up to them. If they want to talk about ducks and chickens and mangoes for the rest of the night and day, that's okay. I can bear it. And as soon as he had that thought, Ajahn Shah said, Oh, look at the time. It's nearly three in the morning. The Sangha must be tired. He then looked at Ajahn Sumedho and gave him a big grin. And his American disciple grinned back. That was a good teaching. It wasn't that Ajahn Chah wanted the young Bhikkhu Sumato to suffer, but he wanted him to see what his mind was adding to the painful feeling. He wanted him to see through the reasonable quote-unquote mind. Let's be sensible. You're not talking about anything useful. I could be practicing meditation. I could be improving myself. Instead, I have to listen to all this nonsense that doesn't involve any of the rest of us. That is the voice of reason. Ajahn Chah was teaching him to go beyond that, to develop Genuine patience. Patience. Quite often when we use the word patience, there's a kind of resentment mingled with it. So in the English usage of the word patience, there's a, you know, you're, uh, uh, there's a, always a, well, generally a negativity or a, um, uh, you're sort of tolerating something with your, uh, with gritted teeth. Quite often when we use the word patience, there is a kind of resentment mingled with it. We want this painful thing to be over and we exert our strength to tolerate it. That sort of patience involves a large portion of negativity. The patience, which is a paramita, a genuinely liberating quality, is the attitude of the heart that lets go of time. True patience is where there is a letting go of the idea of the future. It's not just gritting your teeth and tolerating as you resent an uncomfortable feeling. It's a profound letting go. With true patience, you are not waiting. This is the result of letting go of craving. We can learn to be with uncomfortable feeling and not be waiting for it to be over. We're not pretending to be glad. The uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling is still there, but we're not resenting it. We're not creating negativity around it. This kind of patience is a wise surrender. It's a surrender of self-centered desire, tanha. We acknowledge the impact of our senses. If something is painful, we don't pretend it's not painful. If something is delicious, we don't pretend it's not delicious. If something is likable, we don't pretend it's not likable. There is that impact. That's the asada I was talking about. There is that impact. 
Ajahn Shah often said that practicing Dhamma is not about getting rid of like and dislike. That's impossible. We're not rocks or tree stumps. We're going to experience like and dislike. The point is, what do we do with it? The realization that we can dislike, yet not hate, just as we can like, yet not want, is profoundly liberating. So that, and this is a story Lumpur Sumato has told many times about that particular um, uh, incident in the in the, the little um, uh, recitation hall at uh, Wat Bapong, and <laughs> obviously had a very powerful impact on him at the time. And uh, the the kind of reasonable and resentful grumbling his mind was doing, but as soon as, as soon as he gave up, then um, and uh, you know, people used to. Uh, Assume or guess that Ajahn Chah had psychic powers, but uh, he he uh, when he was asked about that he said no I just I, I'm I'm just observant I just watch where people are at so he uh, rather than uh, needing to read uh, the young Bhikkhu Sumedho's mind and, and tell what trains of thought there just looking at his expression he could tell when he's sort of gritting his teeth and resenting as <laughs> being quite and then when he's just given up like okay yeah. I'll be here forever. He could say, "Okay, blow it out." He's let go. <laughs> so, and then, uh, oh, look at the time. Good heavens! <laughs> it's nearly three in the morning. So that uh, that kind of what they call situational teaching was a, a very uh, favoured method by Lumpur Cha, using the ordinary everyday situations to um, to carry out that kind of instruction. And yeah, he never planned anything like that. It wasn't like, "Oh, well, this this will be a good evening to to give." Uh, Tansumato, a, 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 um, a direct instruction, but rather just seeing the situations as they evolved, he would uh, um, make use of them. Uh, another Western monk, uh, uh, Venerable Warapanyo, um, he, uh, this, this kind of thing would happen so often with him, he felt that Ajahn Chah was actually setting up situations. He like, would have little sort of meetings with other senior monks and other Sangha members to kind of plot, okay, how can we get this particular message to Varapanyo? And that uh, he had this sort of slightly paranoid or substantially paranoid fantasies that Ajahn Shah was actually sort of plotting and crafting these setups and sort of rigging things so that Varapanyo would walk into these teaching, um, these uh, situational teachings. And being an American and a New Yorker, he was yeah, he actually confronted Ajahn Chah and said, Are you doing this on purpose, Lumpur? <laughs> you know. And which Ajahn Chah thought was hilarious. And no no uh, no Thai monk would ever have that kind of uh, in your face sort of challenge. But uh, uh, I think New Yorkers are particularly gifted at not being shy about expressing themselves. And so uh Warapanyo, um uh, put it to him that you know, he was plotting and cre- you know, creating these these setups specifically to to teach, quote unquote, him. And yeah, Lumpur thought it was hilarious. And no, no, it's just uh, things happen, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I do use these uh, situations to 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 teach you and other people. But I don't, I don't plot anything. It's not it, there's not nothing is my design. I'm just you know, using the situations as they arise. So, yeah. so any questions, thoughts on that? I feel this uh, understanding that. Patience, the the uh, kanti paramita, um, pe- the, as it uh, uh, from the Ovada Patimoka, patience is the cleansing flame. That it's really helpful to to get a sense of how that works. That patience is not waiting. You're not 
there's, there's still something, you don't have to be patient with pleasant feeling. <laughs> we don't have to be, to, to be patient with things that we, we like and enjoy. Patience is in relationship to things that are uncomfortable, or difficult or challenging. But it's that a letting go of time or in a letting the heart awaken to that, the, the timeless quality of Dhamma, the, the akaliko Dhamma. But uh, that's the genuine quality of patience. That's the patience that's liberating. You're not waiting for this uncomfortable thing to be over. We all have those tendencies. That's natural enough. Oh, when this is finished, when the uh, when the when the weather has warmed up, or when this difficult person has moved away, or when I've got uh, got over this illness, then, or, or when it's my turn, when it's my time for solitary retreat, then. <laughs> yeah. Those thoughts can can ha- can arise. But um, the mind doesn't have to believe in them or invest in them or, or make anything of them. And that that um, quality of patience is a, a profound letting go or not non-creation of time. So there's the, the heart awakens to that timeless, unborn, undying quality, the, that Pachupana Dhamma or the Akaliko Dhamma. So I, I, particularly in monastic life, it's, it's extremely helpful to get a, a sense for that because waiting is... Waiting is another word for suffering, I would say. Yes, then. Yes. Can we say that patience is somehow connected with equanimity? Manifestation um, or self equanimity? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they'll be related in that way. It's sort of, um, the equanimity is, is more just in relation, it's a bit more refined in a way. It's just it's to do with. Any kind of turbulence or agitation—it's not necessarily a um, something that is is distressing because you developing you, uh, equanimity can be uh, very useful to develop or natural to de- or, or, or an, uh, a valuable thing to develop in the face of of pleasure or things you know getting what you like. Then, ooh, look at that! <laughs> equanimity is useful for that. So. It, the a patience is a is a more specifically related to painful, difficult, you know, challenging feelings. Okay, so to continue, and this next section is called "No Need to Climb Aboard the Train." Going back to the train analogy, we stand on a train platform. We see a train bound for Paris, Edinburgh, Exeter, Bangkok. Perhaps we know people there, or feel that it's a beautiful place. Perhaps we have heard that there is something interesting or exciting happening there. But that doesn't mean that we need to get on board the train. We can like, but not want. There is a choice there. The forest Ajans of many generations have spoken of mindfulness of feeling, quote-unquote, as the most accessible exit point from the cycle. That was true in the past, and it can be seen to be true today. The story of the uncomfortable young Bhikkhu Sumato was set in a forest in Thailand over 50 years ago, but these principles relate to us equally, here and now, in the materially developed West. That is why they are useful. For each of us, the encouragement is to look at where the mind moves towards dislike, fear, liking or opinionating. Is the object of like or dislike coarse or subtle? Is the object of fear internal or external? Get to know where the mind becomes entangled with objects of fear, desire, aversion, ambition, or opinion. Where are they located? So these um, these uh, uh, this, these qualities, uh, particularly the four 
um, dosa, uh, aversion, uh, raga, passion, or, or can also be um, greed, uh, loba, uh, moha, delusion, and then the fourth one, bhaya, which means fear, those are called the agati, or the biases, B-I-A-S-E-S, biases, the, the biases, so that they are, um, uh, say, habitual inclinations of the mind, so that and a little while ago we were talking about different personalities or different getting to know your own uh, your own character, your own nature, your own conditioning. So that's a uh, uh, and so in terms of the the types of personality, uh, you someone might be called a, a moha chirit, a delusion type, or a dosa chirit, a, uh, a an aversion type, or or a loba chirit, a greed type. Um, and so that uh, part of the the practice in this area is. You know, what are the trains that we tend to get on very easily? <laughs> we tend to find ourselves climbing aboard particular trains. So getting to know your own character, your own conditioning, the things that sort of set you off, that make you excited or make you afraid or make you irritated or, or arouse opinions. Um, and so that uh, getting to, to, to know the conditioning of the mind and seeing where those, those familiar tracks uh, are, are formed, the, those ruts, uh, the kind of... Uh, the the the, the uh, troughs in the ground that the ruts that get worn by our our, our, our taking the, those paths that's you know, very very helpful to because we're all different everyone's conditioning uh, somebody might not be particularly lustful or, or aversive but they <laughs> have very reactive opinions about uh, about politics or about history or about uh, 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 you know race or gender or something that, that is extremely uh, alive other people might not have uh, the, the tendency to follow opinions but they are extremely uh, anxious and uh, and uh, worried that their mind moves towards fear and and, uh, and uh, intimidation uh, all the time others just complain <laughs> you, you know, your mind is just relating to the universe by criticizing complaining and and going down the track of the the, the dosa chirit, that, that's the agati, the, the, the bias that is there. So, get, uh, and that, uh, that getting to know your own character, uh, it's one of the seven qualities of a, of a good person or a well-rounded person, a sapurisa. Uh, so, uh, I, I mentioned this a few times in Dhamma talks, I think, it, I feel it's a, a good spelling out of the development of mindfulness and full awareness, satisampajanya. Uh, these seven qualities of a sapurisa. Sat means good or positive, uh, a, a, a complete, and then purisa just means a person. So, so a sapurisa means a, a good-hearted person or a well-rounded person, uh, and that uh, the seven qualities of a of a well-rounded person, which is the, the the term I prefer, are uh, first of all dhammanyuta. Um, uh, you consider the origins of things, where things come from. Then atanyuta, a double t h, where they go, what the, what their the results are, uh, where things are heading. So you're considering the the sort of the the, the flow of events and uh, and activity, where things come from, where things go to. The third one is atanyuta, a t t, like ata, as in uh, the anatta. So knowing your yourself, knowing your own character. And that doesn't mean a, an independent, permanent, absolute self. It's just this person rather than that person in terms of conventional designation. 
So Atanyuta is the third one, knowing your own character, your own personality. The fourth one is Matanyuta, uh, which means knowing the right amount. And so knowing the, having a sense of, of how much to say, how much to eat, how much to sleep, uh, how much to exercise, uh, how much to, to, uh, how long to sit, whatever it might be, you know, on physical things, uh, in, uh, internally, externally, in terms of, of work, um, how much to, when, when you need to take a break from, from uh, the work, or when you, or when you try to lift something that's, is it too heavy, or is it, is it, uh, something you can manage? Knowing the right amount, there's many, many dimensions of that. So, Matanyuta. Then the next one is Kalanyuta. Knowing, Kala is time, so knowing the right time for things. Um, so, also, uh, involves punctuality. Which I, uh, I'm very fond of uh, encouraging the, the discipline of punctuality. Mm-hmm. Not looking at anyone in particular, but uh, Kalanyuta, uh, a well run a sapurisa, uh, always knows the right time for things, like the right time to be uh, showing up, uh, which is, i.e., not late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, the, the right time to ring the bell at the end of the sitting. You know, that the. To, uh, those kind of things. Uh, the right time to show up for the reading. <laughs> the right time to end the reading. <laughs> so, uh, Karl Anita is knowing the right time. And, uh, also, it's, uh, the part of that is, is to do with, uh, and the Venerable Paiuto in, in his book, um, Constitution for Living, there's a really helpful description of each of these seven qualities. He gives a little paragraph or two about each of these seven Qualities of a sapurisa. That, uh, that's a really helpful description. And we've got quite a number of copies, I think, in the library and around the monastery. So, uh, knowing that, knowing the right time is also, um, if uh, you want to talk to somebody about something, then is it the right time? Are they busy doing something else? Or you, you want to talk about some practical task and, and the person you need to talk to is, is looking really tearful and upset. And so, to know, oh, this isn't the right time to bring that up. That they're they're looking like they're in a in a delicate mood or something. Something's happened, so I'll leave it for another time. So kalanyuta is also knowing what's the, the appropriate time for for such things. Then um, the the last two pugalanyuta. Uh, 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 Pugala is a person. So knowing the characters of other people, uh, who are you talking to? You know, the, uh, what's what's your relationship with them? Is this your parent? Is this a student of yours? Is this your teacher? Is this uh, someone on the bus? Is this uh, the, the um, uh, you know, someone in a shop? Yeah, you know, who are you in contact with? What's uh, uh, and assessing the, the the situation, the character, and adjusting what you what you say, what you do, how you relate according to the the, the person that you're with, and then. Parisanita, Parisa is a group, so it's kind of an extension of that. Um, this is the time for the Dhamma reading, so I'm sitting here on a chair with a book. You know, if I was, if, if we were in the temple and it was, let's say, two o'clock in the afternoon, and I sit myself down in a, in a chair with a book, then uh, I think, well, that's, this is the, the Parisa, it's the same group of people, but it's, <laughs> it's not the situation for doing the reading. Um, so that, uh, Parisa is uh, knowing the, the the group and what's um, what's appropriate for the group that you're with and um, what's uh, what fits in with the, why this group has gathered together. And so the uh, that and what's the the intention or, or the, uh, the 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 purpose of, of gathering and 
and how can you fit in with that or contribute to that in a skillful way. So those seven, I realize I'm sort of zipped through them very quickly. I was giving a talk this morning with Maya Gotami, uh, at this organization, this center in, in Thailand, which was set up by students of Lumpur Cha um, many years ago. And uh, one of the people had like a, <laughs> a sort of a seven-word uh, synopsis for the whole of these, these seven. I didn't quite catch the, the, the list, but I was impressed. Just boop, 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 uh, remember this list, this list in a, a very handy way. So, to continue with this. When we get to know those objects, we can consciously learn how to be aware of the feelings that arise in those areas. We have to know for ourselves where our points of grasping are, what we love, what we hate, what we're afraid of, what we have opinions about, what's familiar to us, what we're nostalgic for. It's useful to explore, explore all these areas to become familiar with them. Even tiny things like our attachment to the correct way of slicing a tomato. And I don't think knives have been drawn in the kitchen about this, but uh, I've heard there have been disputes in the past about how a tomato or carrots should and should not be cut. Opinions vary. With great feeling sometimes. How we feel the knife should be held when bread is buttered. The edge of the blade should be away when you butter your when you butter your bread. The sharp edge should always be away from you. you spread the butter with the back of the blade coming towards you. That's how the butter should be spread. And, uh, in, in Thailand, they have it even more. Uh, uh, when I when I hacked a large hole in my foot in the first week, I was. One of the reasons I ended up staying in the monastery was I cut a large hole in my foot a week after I arrived. Not on purpose, but through extraordinary stupidity. Uh, I hacked a, I was chopping kindling to start fires in the kitchen that was not needed. And that's why I'm slightly lame in my, on my right, in my right foot. I have a slight limp and um, my right shoes wear out more slowly than my left shoes do. But uh, anyway, uh, when I had my foot all stitched up and, and bandaged, and, I, and uh, I'd gone over to uh, to to Wat Bapong and went, went up with Lumpur Cha, he just made the comment, "Always cut away from yourself." Which, the, uh, as a two-year-old, you, you know, you learn in a, a, in Thailand, uh, particularly in the, in, the, in the villages, village life, and, and I think he had this sort of expression on his face. How could a grown man do something so incredibly stupid? Yeah. But he, he made that comment, you always cut away from yourself. So whenever I have a, even like opening a letter or opening a parcel, I, I, I remember, I have Lumpur Chari in my mind. I, I, after 40 years or so, I've, I've learned. <laughs> always cut away from yourself. And uh, so we have that, that custom with spreading things on, on bread, but, uh, but with, uh, uh, knife work generally in the in the Western Europe often we're sort of <laughs> moving sharp objects towards ourselves and then a surprise went, oh dear, blood. Where did that, where's that come from? So, <clears throat> what are the areas where we get upset? Excited, afraid, irritated. What are our cherished opinions? Our religion, our politics, our family. See what effects are triggered in the mind. Each one of us has unique areas of attachment and entanglement, so it's up to each one of us to explore and see where we get lost. We see that, we feel that, and then we, uh, 
We see that, we feel that, and then we apply this meditation on feeling. See if you can like, but not want. Dislike, but not hate. What then is the result of making that effort? The reason the Buddha described the process of dependent origination was to help living beings stop suffering. The letting go of craving, following on from knowing, feeling in those ways, uh, is the easiest and most accessible exit point from the wheel of birth and death. This is something which all of us can do. We can apply these teachings to our moment-to-moment experience, and the degree to which the teachings are thus applied is the degree to which they will be genuinely useful. Now, as an illustration, uh, uh, and I feel as a very good example of that kind of conditioning, I thought I would share with you this little book called The Mountains of Tibet, which I'm very fond of. And when people ask about rebirth and what gets reborn and uh, how that whole process works, I, think I often mention this as an example. And so I thought I would... Uh, uh, those of you with good eyesight will be able to see the pictures. <laughs> it's, uh, it's called The Mountains of Tibet. And uh, it was written by a person called Mordecai Gerstein. It's, not a, um, it's, it's based on Tibetan Buddhism, but it's not a very Tibetan name. Mordecai, I think he's a New Yorker again. Mordecai Gerstein wrote the book. So, if I may share this with you, it's not very long. In a tiny village in a valley, high in the mountains of Tibet, a little boy was born. He loved to fly kites. On clear nights, he liked to look up at the Milky Way and the stars. There are other worlds up there, he said to himself. Someday I'm going to visit them. He grew up to be a woodcutter. As he gathered his wood, he looked out beyond the the far mountains. There are other countries out there, he said to himself. Cities and oceans and people of other races. Someday I'll go and see them. But he was always busy with his work and his wife and children. He lived to be very old, and he never left his valley. So he's a a, a wrinkly old fellow with all his hair fallen out under a tree. uh, So the the story is moving forward very quickly. (laughs) It's rather like that that, uh, Pixar movie, Up. (laughs) I think the, the heroine dies within the first five minutes of the film. So it's a very similar nature. I think this was, this was written before Up was made as a movie. Then he died. <laughs> so you know, he, uh, he dies on about the fourth or fifth page. He found himself in a place that was both very dark and very bright. He heard a voice speaking to him. The voice said, you, have now be- you now have a choice. You may become part of the endless universe some call heaven, or you may live another life. I want to live another life, said the woodcutter. The one I just lived has faded from my mind like a dream. All I can remember is that I wanted to see more of the world. Look around you, said the voice. Helpful pale blue void. The woodcutter looked out and he saw all the worlds of the universe. They blazed and spun like fireworks on New Year's Eve. There are hundreds of millions of worlds, said the voice. They're called galaxies. Everyone is different, and each one is beautiful, and you may choose any one that you like to live in. Then the woodcutter heard the galaxies singing to him, Choose me, choose me, sang each one. The woodcutter was frightened. His head began to spin. 
How can I choose? He cried. Choose from your heart, the voice replied. So there are the glorious, spinning, beautiful galaxies. There was a pinwheel-shaped galaxy that looked like a great splash of milk. I like that one, said the woodcutter. That galaxy has hundreds of millions of stars, said the voice. They come in all shapes and sizes, and anyone you like may be your own. All the stars of the galaxy sparkled for the woodcutter. They flashed like fireflies in the woods on a summer night. But one star caught his eye. Its light was warm and golden. So this is the, the big splash of milk spiral galaxy. I'll take that one, said the woodcutter. That star, said the voice, has nine perfect planets revolving around it. Which one would you like to be your home? The woodcutter saw the nine planets, each in its place. One was huge with swirling clouds, another was red. One had sparkling rings around it and many moons. One looked like a blue-green marble the woodcutter had had long ago as a boy. I like that one, said the woodcutter. Somehow it looks like home. I think you can guess where this is going. <laughs> the plot is kind of uh, readable. On that planet, said the voice, live hundreds of thousands of different and wonderful creatures. You may live your life as anyone you like. Which will you be? The woodcutter looked again, and there were all the different creatures parading past him. Some swam, some danced, some flew. Come be like me, each one called. See how much fun you'll have. See how beautiful you'll be. There were whales and goldfish, lions and pussycats. There were snakes and giraffes. There were butterflies and there were people. The woodcutter almost decided to be a seagull gliding on the sea breeze. Then he saw a child watching the seagull and laughing. The child was flying a kite. The many, many creatures. Various kinds. Giraffes and whales and baboons. Lions and turkeys. I want to be a person, said the woodcutter. There are thousands of kinds of people in the world, said the voice, each with different dances and delicious dishes, and you may join any kind you like. The woodcutter looked and saw all the peoples of the world dancing around him. They looked like flowers. There were red, white, and golden people. There were black and brown and pink people. Some wore feathers and some wore silks. Some wore plaids, like tartan. Some stripes. They all danced their dances and called to him in all their different languages, just taste this, they called, holding out their most tempting dishes. Mmm, this is the hardest choice, said the woodcutter. So there's the many, many peoples doing their dances and offering their dishes. Great variety of mobile people from everywhere in the world. From Spain, from the Arctic, from Guatemala, from everywhere. <laughs> Finally, the music of the golden people touched his heart. I will join them, he said. Now, said the voice, where on your planet would you like to be born? It may be anywhere you like. Then the woodcutter saw all the countries that he'd never seen during his life. He saw forests and plains. He saw deserts and green islands. He saw great cities and lush jungles. But there was one green valley, high in the craggy mountains, that seemed to wink at him and whisper old familiar stories. So many cities and places of the world, rivers and and. Uh, valleys and forests, mountains. That looks like a perfect place to be born, said the woodcutter. 
There are dozens of young mothers and fathers in that valley, said the voice. Whichever you'd like best will be yours. The woodcutter felt the love of all the young mothers and fathers in the valley flow up to him. They all smiled and held out their arms to him, calling, Come to us, come be ours. He saw a man whose smile made his heart sing. He saw a woman whose smile made him feel safe and warm. I want them for my parents, he said. They're all the, the people of the, uh, the valley amongst the craggy mountains, reaching out their arms, inviting. Last, said the voice, you may choose whether to be a boy or a girl. I seem to remember that I was a boy, said the woodcutter. This time I'd like to see what being a girl is like. And so, in a tiny village in a valley, high in the mountains of Tibet, a little girl was born. She loved to fly kites. So, just to share that with you, I feel it's a very good... Uh, and charming, accessible description of how habits and associations work, and that, hmm, that sounds familiar, oh, I kind of like the smell of that, or, yeah, that seems, yeah, somehow this seems like a good fit, and then, and then, and then, we end up uh, landing where we do. So any questions on that before I continue? Again, this is not sort of uh, the only way of understanding these things, uh, but I feel it's a, it's a very good uh, and uh, accurate description of how these things work, to, with uh, a few caveats. I wouldn't say that um, that uh, the uh, the possibility of just sort, of dis- <laughs> sort of dissolving into the infinite is um, as part of the, the, the Tibetan way of speaking about things. The, the clear light nature of mind is is uh, presented, but uh, uh, I think for, for most uh, most beings when they die, that, that uh, you, it wouldn't be such a quite a spelled out choice of, you can either <laughs> never be born again uh, and, uh, and uh, end the whole cycle of rebirth, or you can carry on. I don't think it's, it's quite that simple, personally. So let's continue. The next section is called making the darkness visible. The four kinds of grasping are grasping sense pleasure, kham upadana, grasping views and opinions, dit upadana, grasping conventions, silabat upadana, and grasping views of yourself, attavad upadana. How do each of us work best with these various kinds of grasping? We're all different in personality and experience. Therefore, each of us will probably have stronger tendencies in certain areas. It's up to each one of us to explore the habit areas where our minds get most fully caught up. That said, there are effective ways that we can approach all the different kinds of grasping. One approach is what I call conscious clinging, or making the darkness visible, quote-unquote. This is a method that Ajahn Sumedho has encouraged in the past, and which I have found extremely helpful. When we notice a particular kind of grasping in the mind, something that we want, something that we hate, typically we think, if we're trying to be good Buddhists and and, uh, spiritual practitioners, we think that we should let go of that unskillful feeling. And we may think that there is something wrong with us if we can't let go of it. Most of us, as Buddhist practitioners, 
are trained to have this response to let go. But often, in the urge to, to immediately let go, we're actually, and unconsciously, empowering those unskillful attitudes by being afraid of them, averse to them. Oh, I don't want to feel anger. I've got to get rid of my anger. Or I don't want to feel uh, lustful or, or possessive. I, I need to get rid of my possessiveness. I'm so selfish, I've got to get rid of my selfishness. That the, the mind creates a me who is the genuine owner of this uh, unskillful, unwholesome thing. And then uh, it sort of says, uh, it creates the paradigm or the model of I'm the person who is the owner of this thing and, and I've got to get rid of this thing and there'll be me without that unskillful and problematic thing. Which seems reasonable, reason, reasonable enough on a, a kind of worldly level, but as Lumpur would often say, to, to think in terms of me and my problems is you're setting a, a para, you're setting up the paradigm of basing your practice on self-view and and on uh, and on ownership and rather than me and my problems it's more helpful to see here is the awake mind the Buddha mind seeing the way things are so not me and my problems but the Buddha seeing the Dhamma we make them more real by creating a reaction against them we create a belief. I, I am an angry person, or I'm better than that person, or I'm a greedy person. And we unconsciously strengthen that belief, even as we are trying to let the unskillful habit go. So this is ironic and tragic, but a lot of us spend a huge amount of time doing this, <laughs> trying with great sincerity to work with our obstacles and and uh, and uh, difficulties that we experience. But uh, unwittingly, unknowingly, uh, feeding them and supporting them by this, by basically uh, approaching them with vibhavatanha, the desire to get rid of, and that makes them stronger, makes them more reifies them, makes them seem more real, <coughs> and and uh, reifies the sense of uh, I, the the person who has this problem. Ajahn Sumedha would rec- recommend that instead of pushing the belief away, we bring it front and center instead. Get it to speak up. If we feel annoyed with someone, bring that annoyance to mind. I wish that person didn't exist. I wish he was dead. What we're doing seems unthinkable. (gasps) Good Buddhists shouldn't be having a thought like this. But when we bring that thought front and center, what happens almost immediately is that we start laughing. Once it's clearly conscious, the absurdity of the thought becomes apparent. If you were different, I would be happy we realize it's a joke. Then maybe we find something else to be annoyed with, uh, <laughs> to, to be annoyed about. But again, we notice the judgments we're making and we can train ourselves not to believe our own thoughts. We recognize that this is a judgment and not an absolute fact. So the, the way that I find this working is that those kind of habits of, oh, I've got an anger problem, I've got a lust problem, I've got an anxiety problem, I've got a selfishness problem, it, they sort of hover around the back and oh, I shouldn't have that, I've got to get rid of that, I really need to let go of that, that's really unskillful. And that sort of hovers around the edges. And so it has its influence um, uh, because it's not really fully acknowledged, fully known. Um, but then this practice is sort of getting it front center. So, okay, speak up. You know, say, <laughs> say what it is that you, that you, that you want, that you're, you're afraid of, or that, that is wrong. And that by sort of getting these impulses out of the shadows, getting them front and center, getting them to speak up, then 
when you uh, you have that thought that if you were different, I would be happy. And you know, uh, my experience of it is that you can't get to the end of the sentence before it just sort of falls apart on its own. Um, and so that I found this an extremely helpful practice because uh, it's and Lumpur would also call it thinking the unthinkable. Um, if only, uh, if only this would happen, then I'd have a good excuse. I remember Joseph Goldstein um, talking about how when he was on a, a long retreat at IMS and he was having a really difficult time, and he he, he heard some planes flying over, and he thought, "Ooh, maybe nuclear war has started. That'll give me a good excuse to to, end, to leave this retreat." But wait, 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 wait! I'm looking forward to nuclear war just so I have an excuse to legally end this retreat. <laughs> There's something out of balance here, so, so that uh, so when you you say that you know if you were different I would be happy, and when you spell it out like that it's like that'd be ridiculous, it's like you'd find something else to get upset about or or um, you know you you are the you are the problem in my life if you do if you didn't exist then my life would be perfect, and if you if you get you know you get that sort of unskillful thought. And, bring it front center, get it to speak up, rather than sort of those negative thoughts murmuring in the wings, um, then you get them to be spotlit, get the spotlight on them, then they can't hold up. It's like a a conjurer, a magician with the the spotlights on on the, on the, the trick and everything's slowed down so you can see exactly how the trick is done. The trick doesn't work if you can see it all in slow motion. So that uh, this is, I found, is a really effective uh, practice. And you, you, it can seem a bit uh, unskillful or counterintuitive that you're you're deliberately thinking really unskillful thoughts. <laughs> you know, I wish you were dead. You know, if you were dead, life would be perfect. You know, that, and so that might, one might shy away from that. So you're not, you're, you're, when you're making those statements, you're doing it very deliberately and, and consciously. Um, but uh, the, the point of it is to see how they fall apart when they're, they're fully known. The, 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 the wisdom factor is brought to bear on that so that the, um, the, the kind of... Um, the, their, their effect depended on them not being seen clearly or not being known clearly. When they're known clearly, then they're sort of invited to say, please, tell me. <laughs> tell me your story. Tell me what you want. Then the, the, you, it's interesting, sometimes you get this, this feeling of like, oh, shut up, you're ruining the whole thing. You know, the, the kind of desire mind, Mara's getting, getting uh, the program ruined by too much light uh, on the uh, on the on the, the the system. Too much light on the subject. Any thoughts, questions? Yes, Virginia. Uh, also, it seems that sometimes uh, these areas um, they have kind of condensation. So they they could be some little things, but they uh, cover something bigger. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your mind can attach to something and you can fight it, but um, behind it is something much more serious. Mm-hmm. And if you bear with this one and somehow put it down, you see the bigger thing. Right? Mm-hmm. So quite often these unskillful habits, they hide something yes, much yeah. deeper. Yeah. That can be the case. So, and sometimes it's, it's not clear that they, you might get a feeling, oh, I think there's something else behind this. 
but it's not clear what that is. <laughs> but, uh, they, so just to to trust that intuition of like, what you know, why did that happen? Or yeah, that I, the mind keeps going down that track. Where's that coming from? What's driving that? And it it can be not clear, not obvious at all. But so it's useful to respect that intuition. Mm, there's something behind this. Something something is driving this. But to be patient and just to, to be um, putting attention onto that and being ready to look and explore it. But it can be you know, a long time, weeks or months or years sometimes before that. Oh, I think <laughs> I think that it's, it seems to be something to do with, with that particular habit or that particular event in my childhood or that particular uh, way that I, I see myself. Aha! And so, but it can be a long, long time before what's what's behind those kind of things becomes apparent. Okay, so to continue. This practice is particularly helpful in regard to self-view, attavad upadana. If we have a a self-critical attitude, a negative self-view, we can catch the mind creating that self-critical thought. We bring it front and centre and ask it to speak up. We recognise the judgement, I am a terrible person. I'm the worst person in this family. I'm polluting the atmosphere for everybody else with my selfish thoughts. We tend to believe thoughts like this because they're they're internal, often unspoken, and yet so familiar. We think them and take them to be true without even realizing that they are an assumption. So instead, we bring them forward in order to see them clearly. When exploring attachment to conventions, one easy example to use is that of money. Uh, so can you, before going on to that, so that in terms of, of um, it's not just uh, relation to other people, but also that um, I am a terrible person. You know, I'm the worst monk in Amravati. Um, when they when they find out how when they find out how awful I am, everyone will want to get rid of me. You know, that kind of if that, if that thought crosses the mind, <laughs> well, the uh, to to take those self-critical thoughts and to catch them, to notice them, bring them out, and then. Again, they they all they fall apart in, a, in exactly that same exactly that same way. When exploring attachment to conventions, one easy example to use is that of money. In the UK, the unit of currency is still pounds, but take an old blue five-pound note. You remember blue five-pound notes? Green, <laughs> I remember blue, I remember blue 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 but anyway the, the one pound notes were green the five pound notes were blue the ten shilling notes were brown anyway sorry hmm? I, I haven't seen one <laughs> I, don't, I don't see money very often they're, they're kind of plastic aren't they now yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't see money very often. <laughs> I have a very privileged existence, like the Queen. You know. <laughs> Monastics don't, don't, don't have to uh, get acquainted or, or handle money. So anyway, <clears throat> but take an old blue five-pound note to a shop today, and they won't accept it. Similarly, if you try to spend francs in France, lira in Italy, or Deutschmarks in Germany. They won't buy you anything, since the currency is now euros. That which was uh, agreed to have value now has no value. 
When I was a young child, my grandfather, who was German, uh, gave me a billion mark banknote from the Weimar era in Germany. Ein Milliarde. Is that right? Ein Milliarde. Uh, a billion mark note. Uh, I was impressed that it had only been worth pennies at the time. So, so he was, uh, he lived in, in England. He, he, he and my, my mother grew up in North London, but he had a lot of family in Germany. And, and so during that Weimar era after the First World Wars, and uh, he would be over there visiting family from time to time. And he has stories of people you know, going to the shops with a wheelbarrow full of, of spank notes just to buy you know, a loaf of bread and a, and a couple of apples. When we reflect on this, what does it say about how we give things value? And how that value seems so real, yet a finger snap later, the value has gone. It was just what our minds and human agreements had added to it. This is bearing in mind that just, quote-unquote, is a big word. It takes a lot of mindfulness and wisdom to notice this kind of habitual conditioning. One way to investigate this is to ask yourself, why is this important? Why is this important? What makes this so good, so bad? Or even more simply, whenever the mind makes a judgment, is that so? And this was a practice Lumpur Cha encouraged to, to, uh, to, as a kind of um, a way of developing their perspective on, on the mind's conditioning and uh, attachment to conventions and judgments and, and to develop the sense of, uh, of anicca, the anicca sanya. Whenever you see the mind making a judgment of any kind, you know, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, just to meet that with, is that so? Jingle, is that true? Is that, is that a fact? Is that so? And that like, uh, challenging of, uh, of an opinion, of a judgment, what it's doing is not trying to make ourselves more so insecure or anxious, but rather recognizing that the things have an imputed value, or what one person calls delicious, somebody else will call disgusting. What someone says is a beautiful color, someone else says, oh, a horrible color. And that just noticing this is a judgment. This is, this can't have an absolute value. This is subjective and uh, formed from your own, from the mind's own conditioning. And so, and again, it's a, like that making the darkness visible, that, that sort of amplifying our, our, our aversions and, and desires and attachments. Uh, just asking that question, is that so? Noticing how often the mind makes a judgment, saying, well, that's ridiculous. Is that so? Well, now this is really important. Is that so? Now, now things are going well. Is that so? Now things have really fallen apart. Is that so? And it has an amazing balancing effect. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, you know, like anything, you have to apply it. If you don't, if you don't use it, it doesn't work. <laughs> if you, but if you apply it, you bring that kind of, of active reflection on and noticing how often the mind makes judgments. It is startling how many judgments the mind makes during the course of the day. If you start to not exactly keep a notebook, but just to say, okay, just to notice during during a day how often the mind says, "That's good, that's bad, I like, I don't like. This is beautiful, that's ugly. That's right, that's wrong. This should be this way, it shouldn't be that way." Uh, it is uh, uh, astonishing, I found, how uh, how much the mind judges things. But then, if you meet each of those judgments with is that so? Is that uh, is that a sure thing? Then you, you find there's this spaciousness around uh, those those judgments. Is re- they're recognised as conventional and conditioned uh, reactions. So to continue, our attachments to sensual pleasures, conventions of 
uh, or our views and opinions tend to be more visible. However, however, our views about ourselves, our self-judgment, tends to be invisible. Before I learned this practice from Ajahn Sumedho back in the mid-80s, I frequently used to think that I would be fine if only I could be someone else. I would regularly think in this self-critical way, if only I wasn't me, everything would be great. And that thought was very regularly crossing my mind. If only I wasn't me, if I was just anybody else, it would be, it would be better. But, uh, um, and uh, this pra- uh, so the practice of bringing these critical voices to the center of attention was very helpful and made a big difference. If I had that thought, I would catch it and replay it. If only I was someone else, I would be fine. It's a joke. You know, how could that be taken seriously? It would, it would then fall apart on its own. I heartily recommend this practice, this kind of reflection, to investigate the way the mind creates the world. We mindfully catch the thought and then consciously replay it internally. It's quite wonderful to see that, uh, that the thought's value, its meaning, fall away. Sorry, it's quite wonderful to see that thought's value, its meaning, fall away. We don't have to say to ourselves, I shouldn't be thinking that foolish thought. The thought falls apart on its own in the light of wisdom. Just like the, uh, a heat lamp kind of loosening a, a tight muscle or the, the sun evaporating the, the dew on the grass on a sunny day. That, that's the effect of wisdom on that, that kind of um, grasping and attachment, that sort of self-judgment. Notice the effect when those beliefs and that type of grasping falls away. What's the result? What happens to the heart when the grasping stops? For myself, there is always a feeling of relief, the quality of freedom. We need mindfulness to name the quality and tone of experience. We notice the feeling and we name it in a clear and complete way. As an example, I used this when I was on a year-long pilgrimage to India. India is famous for the arising of all kinds of emotional feelings, particularly feelings of irritation, discomfort, and frustration. (laughs) Any of us who've travelled much in India might be able to relate to that. In my opinion, India is the most wonderful country in the world, and I love it dearly. But while travelling in India, powerful feelings of irritation can arise. I adopted a really simple and direct practice for my trip, one that I could use in all circumstances so that I wouldn't get lost in aversion or frustration or grumbling or complaining, and instead use the flow of feeling and the support of the Dhamma. I'd also had a lot of conversations with other people who travelled in India <laughs> a lot. I've been a couple of times before, but I was going to be there for a whole year, so I set this sort of clear resolution uh, before I set off. I determined that whatever feeling arose, I would look at it without getting upset. This kind of meditation on conscious feeling was then extraordinarily helpful. Every time a train was 18 hours late, or we missed it because it was two hours earlier than scheduled, preponed is the appropriate word. You can find it in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's listed as infrequent usage in the Indian Railway Service. (laughs) Maybe not frequent, as used regularly in the Indian Railway Service. Uh, I would consciously look at the feeling that arose and spell it out. No train should ever be late because that makes things inconvenient for me. That's what the feeling is. As a result, I had the most wonderful year traveling in India. When I was upset, I would notice the feeling of being upset. If I was worried, I would notice the feeling of being worried. 
That's all it would take, if I remembered to apply the practice. We can use this meditation on conscious feeling in many dimensions of our daily lives. It doesn't have to be only when we're upset, or lost in fear, or desire. If someone comes to us in tears, and we don't know how to handle the situation, we might feel ourselves pulling away, or jumping in to fix them. Uh, Pulling away or contracting. We can notice that feeling of tightening. In that moment, where instead of reacting blindly, we consciously feel, there's a natural relaxation. We're still paying attention, but that sense of contraction or fear, that sense of, what should I do, drops away. We make the mind consciously aware that this is the, oh dear, this person is very upset and they are asking me to do something about it, feeling. That's what this is. That's what this feeling is. The mind that knows it as a feeling is, in that conscious knowing, freed from identification with that feeling, at least to some degree. It's known as a mental event arising and passing in consciousness, rather than as a real thing that involves me. In the heart, there's a natural attunement to the situation, and we find ourselves able to respond more effectively, either with a gesture or by words, or or by being quiet. The heart is able to respond with what is helpful, rather than reacting from uh, from an acquisitive, fearful, or aversive place. So uh, again, that's a, a very helpful practice, along with these other ones of make, uh, conscious conscious clinging or uh, asking, you know, is that so? This um, mode of just naming the feeling. So it was like a, the whole year in India, India and Nepal and Bhutan as well. It was like a meditation on, on feeling, and it was just just simply naming that simply, <laughs> like just simply is a very big word, contains a lot. Uh, just catching the the attitude, catching the feeling, and naming it. So you're not trying to sort of numb yourself or or, or, or kind of be sort of dissociated in an unskillful way, but rather just oh, this is the uh, like in that example. Oh, you know, oh, this is the oh dear, this person's upset and and they're in tears and uh, and what uh, what am I going to do about it? Feeling, and then naming that. That's what this feeling is. Then there's a way that you're, that there's a, the heart is able to attune more completely to the situation, um, rather than identifying with the feeling of I've got to do something a bit about this or this is up to me, um, and that uh, or the, or this is oh, oh yeah someone yeah someone's suffering I can fix that you know, <laughs> you know to the rescue uh, or this is the um, someone's suffering yeah I can fix that to the rescue feeling uh, and. It's a it's a mysterious chemistry, but if that there is that knowing of those reactions and the the, the habits that the mind has in in relating to uh, the the realm of, of feeling like that, then there there's a a mysterious kind of attunement and a, also a confidence that that's the the best thing that can be done with that situation. And being around people like Lumpur Sumato or you know, Lumpur Chao, great great teachers, that uh, that and seeing how they would re- respond very, very differently to different situations. You can see the, the same kind of receiving and knowing the feeling that's there, and then just letting the response come out of that, that empty space that the, the feeling has been received into, or has been known in. So uh, there's a, a few practices in terms of getting to know our own character, our own habit tendencies, that uh, can be um, a benefit. 
So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay, well it's just gone seven, so let's leave it there for today. Sadhu Karam Dadamasi Sadhu